If you haven't been wished a Merry Christmas, I'd like to wish you a Merry Christmas and uh, a Happy New Year. Um, <clears throat> somebody came into our office just recently on the open day in Berrien Springs and a choir came and they were, they were singing, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, and I said, I'm not. Anything but a white Christmas, a brown Christmas, a black Christmas, a gray Christmas, a, gra- a green Christmas, just don't give me snow this year. And um, so I praise God that um, so far we indeed have had a green or a gray Christmas. But I stand before you uh, here today knowing that it's an incredible privilege and a responsibility to stand and proclaim the living words of the living God. And so I invite you to bow your heads with me as we ask for the presence of God to speak to us. Dear Father, as uh, our friends have just sung, I pray that you'll renew each one of us today. That just as when we see a butterfly, we have no idea there was once a caterpillar. I pray that when people see us, they will not see our past, but they'll see where, where we are flying to. Father, as you changed John Newton's life, as we're going to discover today, as you changed the Apostle Paul's life, I ask this morning that your same grace will be at work in each of our lives as well. So, Father, speak through me this morning. May my words indeed be your words. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. Uh, Some of you know that just recently it was my privilege to uh, be in, in the country of Iraq, uh, in the northeastern part, portion called Kurdistan. And um, <clears throat> I won't go into many great details here this morning, but um, I, I want to share with you what it was like to, to visit with some of the, those who had fled the violence of ISIS. And uh, as you walk through these large halls or churches the size of this, and you meet with families on, on a pew like this, you may have two families living on every pew, and they just have the clothes they're standing in, Um, As you meet with families and they tell you their stories, as they tell you their stories, there is not a lot you can say. I won't go into the details of the stories, but for the first time in my life, I understood why in the book of Job, it says that when Job's three friends came together and they saw the suffering of Job, they sat in silence for seven days. There are times when we come face to face with the reality of evil and the depth of human suffering and despair when words will not suffice, when we simply have to be quiet. And over there in Iraq, there were times as I listened to particularly the ladies telling of what had happened to their children, that words indeed did not suffice. The only thing I could do was sit and listen. There are times when we come face to face with the reality of evil. And on my first Sabbath out there in northern Iraq, I met with the three young Adventists who are out there. There's one Adventist family, Iraqi. There's three young Westerners out there, young people. I met with them in a hotel lobby. The hotel was empty. Nobody was flying into northern Iraq, I can assure you, in August of this year. We sat down in the lobby of the hotel and we had a worship service, a public worship service. There was nobody in the lobby. Even the staff had gone. They were out looking for their relatives. And we sat there in the lobby of the hotel and we had a season of prayer. Now, one of those young 
people was a young American lady. I won't mention her name. But she was a young American lady, and ISIS were 50 miles down the road. They were from here to South Bend. And at the time, they were advancing fast. And we didn't know whether ISIS would be there within the hour or not. And we sat there, and in our prayer season, she started praying for the jihadis of ISIS. Now, I knew that if I was captured, I'd probably be paraded on CNN after a few months being held in a cell somewhere, and I'd then probably lose my head. But if she was captured, her fate was going to be much worse than mine as a young American lady. And yet she sat there and she prayed that those jihadis would come to know Jesus Christ. And our sermon this morning is entitled Paul, from Jewish jihadi to Gentile apostle. Because as we look at the life of Paul, we realize that indeed he may not have been a Muslim jihadi, but he was a Jewish jihadi. And so if you have the word of God with you this morning, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 1. And we're just going to be looking in detail at the first verse of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. And uh, the Apostle Paul, he starts with one word which I want to reflect on for a few moments this morning. And it is this, Paul. That's how he starts his letter. He says, Paul. Now, um, how you start a letter is often significant. Would you agree with me? Uh, when I used to serve in Tajikistan uh, back in the early and the mid-90s um, with Adra, we had certain rules of communication because there was a civil war going on and Westerners were being taken hostage by the Mujahideen in the country. Uh, they seemed to, I seemed to follow them or they seemed to follow me through life. But uh, we had some rules of communication. One of them was this. Um, if you were ever being captured, you went on the radio and you just said on the shortwave radio, I'm going for tea. That was the code for I'm being kidnapped. And uh, with the ADRA office in Moscow, we had an agreement that every email I sent would start off with the phrase, Dear Pavel, uh, dear Paul, greetings from Dushanbe. And he knew and I knew that if, the, if my letter did not begin, greetings from Dushanbe, that was a code that something was wrong with my situation or with the contents of that letter. It was a coded signal. And the beginning of a letter is often significant, thankfully, I never had to use it for myself, but I did have one colleague who was captured who eventually negotiated his release from the Taliban. And the first word of Paul's letter to the Church of Rome is simply this, Paul. It's a deeply significant beginning. And why do I say that this morning? Well, the very first thing Paul wants the Church of Rome to know is his new name, Paul, but that was not his birth name. He was born Saul. We know from the book of Acts that he was born in the city of Tarsus, a city on the southern uh, coast of Turkey, on the Mediterranean coast. It was an important city. When he was captured in Rome, uh, in Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 22, Paul um, told the Roman officer who arrested him that he was from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of an important city. Paul was not merely a resident of Tarsus, he was a citizen of Tarsus, which gave him citizen rights, of which he was proud and made use whenever he felt the need. But Paul does not call himself Saul in the beginning of his letter, he calls himself Paul. Not only was Paul a citizen of Tarsus, Saul was also a Roman citizen. Now we may not think of citizenship these days as being a big deal. Most of us here today are American citizens. 
But in the time of Paul, you could be a slave, and maybe two-thirds of the population of the empire of that time were slaves. If you were a gladiator and you fought particularly well in the Roman Colosseum, you were given your freeman, you became a freeman, but you were not necessarily a citizen. To be a Roman citizen gave you particular um, social privileges and legal rights and legal protections. Paul was not just a citizen of an important city, but when he was born, he was also a, a Roman citizen. He was from a respected family with high social standing. And not only was Paul a citizen of an important city and a citizen of the Roman Empire, which most people of his era could only aspire to but never achieve, he was also Jewish. In our first slide, you see in Philippians 3, verses 5 through 6, it says there on the screen, it said, Paul describes his life. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul was born Saul, and he was born in the tribe of Benjamin. And the most famous son of the tribe of Benjamin was the first king of Israel called Saul. So we can figure out that Paul's parents, when he was born as Saul, they were proud of their young boy and decided to name their young boy after the most famous son of the tribe of Benjamin, King Saul. Not only with that, but he says he was circumcised on the eighth day. He came from a very observant Jewish family. He came from a devout Jewish family. He had at least one brother or one sister, because we know that he had a nephew in Jerusalem who later saved his life. He was not an only child. And as a young boy, young Saul, as he was called, was sent to Jerusalem to embark on what was perhaps the most complete education of his era. He was sent to learn at the feet of one of the most famous teachers of his era, a man called Gamaliel I. Gamaliel I was a brilliant mind, well-respected even today in modern-day Judaism. And Paul was sent to learn at the feet of Gamaliel I. You might say he had an Ivy League education. He went to Oxford or Cambridge or Princeton or Harvard or, or MIT. Paul goes on to say in Acts chapter 22 and verse 3, uh, you see this slide on the screen as well. Um, he says, uh, I was educated in the perfect manner of the law, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets, and growing to be zealous towards God and more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of the Jews. He goes on to say in, in the next screen, um, slide on the screen, Galatians 1 and verse 14, he said, I advanced in Judaism beyond many among my people of the same age, and I was far more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. Now, what was he talking about here? Well, the Jews believed that when Moses went on to Mount Sinai, he was given the written Torah. But how were you to interpret the written Torah? And so they came up with this idea that God also gave Moses the oral Torah, which was the oral interpretation of the written Torah. So you might say that in Adventism, we have um, the Bible as the written Torah, but how do we apply that among ourselves? We have something known as the church manual, which describes how we relate to each other within the body of Christ in a way that honors this text here. Or we have in Adventism the working policy, the general conference, which deals with how different entities within the world church deal with one another and relate to one another, all in order to uphold the principles contained 
within this book here. And so Paul was advanced beyond Judaism beyond many of his own people his own age, and he was far more zealous for the traditions of his ancestors. These were the oral traditions of the Jews. And you can find them today in Andrews University. If you go to Andrews today to the library, the James White Library, and you go on the first floor, you can find the Talmud. Now, the Talmud, that the total document is about 6,200 pages. It's a good Sunday afternoon's read. 6,200 pages with, uh, with 63 tracts in it, divided into about seven or six major um, subdivisions. And uh, these include uh, the Oral Torah, known as the Mishnah, and also the Gemara, which is a commentary on the Oral Torah. So you might say that um, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, form the original Torah, and then the Jews have the teachings of the rabbis on that, so that's the Oral Torah, that's known as the Mishnah. Then they have further commentary on the Mishnah, which is a commentary on the Torah, that is known as the Gemara. It's all packed into those 6,200 pages. And Paul was zealous for those, as he calls them here, the traditions of my elders. Paul was, you might say, um, an arch-conservative within Judaism. He joined the sect of the Pharisees, and he embarked on what promised to be a brilliant career ahead as a legal scholar and a thought leader within contemporary Judaism. This young man called Saul had everything going for him. He had a proud social heritage, a proud racial heritage, a proud civic, legal, and religious heritage. He had a world-class education, and he was advanced in Judaism beyond many others his own age. He had a blossoming career well ahead of his contemporaries. You might say he was the rising star of Judaism at the time that Jesus was crucified. Yet, there was a problem in the life of Saul. Because those traditions which he was so zealous to defend were precisely the traditions that Jesus explicitly condemned. The next slide on the screen gives a quote from Jesus, Mark chapter 7 and verse 8, where Jesus is discussing what constitutes true cleanliness. And the rabbis focused on external cleanliness and how to wash your hands, and when to wash your clothes, and so forth, and so forth, and how to wash pots and pans, and what constituted clean and unclean food. And Jesus, he condemns the Pharisees, men like Saul, a contemporary of Jesus, who lived at the time of Jesus, who would have known of Jesus' teachings. Jesus says, you abandon the commandments of God, and you hold to the human tradition or the traditions of men. And so the stage is set for a clash between Jesus of Nazareth and Saul of Tarsus, both brilliant young men, perhaps in their 30s in the year AD 30. And Jesus is condemning the very traditions that Saul is zealously upholding. There's no evidence that Saul ever met Jesus before the road to Damascus. But you can imagine what Saul would have thought when he heard the teachings of Jesus, his contemporary in Jerusalem, in Matthew 23. Now, I don't have these slides on the screen, but if you turn in your Bibles to Matthew 23, you see how Jesus relates to Pharisees. Matthew 23, verse 4, Jesus talks about the Pharisees, and he says, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on the shoulders of others, 
but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. And you wonder, what kind of burdens did the Pharisees bind on people's backs? Well, if you were a Jew in Jerusalem and you wanted to know, uh, the Sabbath has now come and the candle has gone out in, 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 on, on the window shelf, on the windowsill, do I have the right to put my candle on or not to see during the Sabbath hours? And if you asked a, a rabbi or a scribe or a Pharisee, you might get an answer like this. They'd say, well, Rabbi Ben Yehuda in the 4th century BC said it's not okay under any circumstances to relight that candle because striking the flint constitutes work. But Rabbi Ben Eliezer from the 3rd century in Babylon, where many Jews lived, he says that as long as you light it from another candle that's already lit, then that doesn't constitute work. But Rabbi Ben Yosef from Nazareth, he teaches that you may light it from an existing candle, but you may not walk more than five feet from one candle to the next, because then that would constitute work. And you literally read through the teachings of the Jews, the traditions of the Jews, and it's Rabbi this says that, Rabbi that says the other, Rabbi over there says this, Rabbi over here says this, and if you're not thoroughly confused by the end of it, you understand why when Jesus spoke on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say unto you, you read Jesus' teachings on the Sermon on the Mount from a Jewish perspective. Nobody ever spoke like Jesus spoke, and that's what the people of his era said. They said such teaching with such authority. Because Jesus never quoted the rabbis of the past. He simply said, you have heard you shall not commit murder, but I say unto you. Jesus presumes an authority to teach that a Pharisee like Saul would never presume. Jesus, he goes on in verse 13, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, people like Saul, my contemporary. You are perhaps the most zealous of the defenders of these, of these traditions of the Jews. Jesus calls him, you are a hypocrite, in verse 13. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 16, to someone like Saul, woe to you, blind guides. Verse 17, you blind fools, says Jesus to a man like Saul. Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and hypocrites. Verse 25, woe to you, hypocrites. You're getting the point, yes? Verse 27, you are like whitewashed tombs. You're clean on the outside, but inside you're full of moral filth. He goes on to call him in verse 23, you brood of vipers. Do you want to have, do you want to know why Paul or Saul persecuted the followers of Jesus? Well, how would you respond if Jesus had been speaking to you and your professional group and said you're a brood of vipers, you're blind guides, you are rank hypocrites, you are whitewashed tombs. And so Paul, Saul as he was before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was in direct conflict with Jesus. The very things that Jesus explicitly condemned are the very things that Saul made his life up, uh, made his life, um, he was going to uphold for the entirety of his life. And so the next screen on the slide, we come to the first time that we meet the Apostle Saul. It says, while they were stoning Stephen, this is AD 34, about three years after Jesus rose and ascended to heaven, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my sight. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died, and Saul approved of their killing him. We read that Saul was standing there. He was holding the coats of those who were stoning Stephen, the first martyr uh, of, of the Christian era. 
This is the first time we meet the Apostle Saul. And we find out that not only did he approve of the killing of Stephen, but in the next slide on the screen, Galatians 1 verse 13, he goes on, he describes to the church of Galatians, he said, You've heard no doubt of my earlier life in Judaism. I was violently persecuting the church of God and was trying to destroy it. He goes on to state in the next slide on the screen, It says, but Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women. He committed them to prison. Not only did he commit them to prison, but when he was before Agrippa, he testified in Acts 26 and verse 10, the next slide. We read there, uh, it says, after this, and this is what I did in Jerusalem, says Saul to Agrippa when he was on trial. He says, with authority received from the chief priests, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, but I also cast my vote against them when they were being condemned to death. Had Paul been alive today, he would be no different to the ISIS jihadists of northern Iraq. You might say he was a Jewish jihadist. But when Paul starts the book to Romans... He doesn't say a word about this. He doesn't announce himself as Saul. He announces himself as Paul. Now, why would he do that? Well, it's beneath his professional veneer as a defender of the traditions of of Judaism and his professional veneer as a self-righteous killer of Christians. God was at work in the life of Saul. Saul revealed this inner turmoil when he stated to Agrippa that he persecu- as he persecuted Christians, he said in Acts 26, 11, he said, I was furiously enraged at them. I was furiously enraged at them. You see that upon the screen there. I punished them often in all the synagogues. I tried to force them to blaspheme. And since I was so furiously enraged at them, I pursued them even to foreign cities. Even when they fled from one city to another, I tracked them down that I may put them in prison and ultimately cast a vote for them to be executed. And why this inner turmoil? Well, again, while he was on trial in our next slide, when Paul was uh, on trial, he said this. When we had fallen to the ground, he's reflecting on his conversion on the road to Damascus. I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It hurts you to kick against the goads. Reflect on that final sentence for a minute. It hurts you to kick against the goads. What does that tell us about Saul? It tells us that while he was a defender of Jewish traditions which Jesus explicitly condemned. And while he was a killer of Christians whom Jesus had died for, Jesus was working on Saul's heart before the road to Damascus experience. Jesus saw behind, beyond the evil of this Jewish jihadi, and he realized that here was a man who could do mighty things for the kingdom of God if only he could meet Jesus for himself. And so under the the twin pressures of his brilliant career in Judaism... And the inner promptings of the Holy Spirit, Paul lashes out, as many conflicted men do, in acts of extreme violence. The next slide on the screen is some of the teachings of Jesus in Luke chapter 6. Jesus says, but I say to you that listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. 
Love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. For your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. It's a beautiful passage, isn't it? But it's so hard to apply. As I sat in, 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 in northern Iraq this summer, I, li- I listened to my sister in Christ, a young Seventh-day Adventist lady who teaches English out there. As I listened to her praying for those jihadists, this is the text that came to my mind. She was praying for the men who might despitefully use her, were they to get their hands on her. And this text started to make sense in a profound way to me. Because we tend to judge others by the, the actions that they do. But God reads the heart. We tend to condemn a man or condemn a woman because of the things that they do or the things that they say. Without realizing that like Saul, before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, Jesus was already working on his heart in a profound way. And Saul was struggling with Jesus Christ before he met him on the road to Damascus. And despite the fact that he was killing the followers of Jesus, Jesus was still working on his heart to bring him to the kingdom of God. And we think of those who hurt us in our lives. And sometimes, or oftentimes, or generally, we tend to condemn those who hurt us without recognizing that maybe Jesus is working on their hearts. And maybe they will only see Jesus in person in how we respond to their evil treatment. After Saul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he spent some time in Damascus where he was baptized. He then went to Arabia before returning to Damascus. And after three years, he journeyed to Jerusalem, where he had a second vision of Jerusalem. Paul discusses this in Acts 22, verse 21. He says that while I was in the temple, Jesus appeared to me in a vision, and he said, Ego, ego, I, apostello, I am sending, say you. Jesus commissioned Saul to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And in the next text upon the screen, Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. This is the beginning of the first missionary journey. Having been commissioned by Jesus in the temple of Jerusalem, we read there that in the church of Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, and a member of the court of Herod the ruler, and Saul. He's not yet called Paul yet. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them, And they sent them off. So Saul and Barnabas were set aside as pioneer missionaries to the Gentiles. And they sailed for the island of Cyprus, where I used to live with my wife many years ago. And now on the western side of the island of Cyprus, there's a beautiful little city there. And I'm trying to remember the name of it now. (laughs) But it's a beautiful little city. It's full of British uh, retirees who've made it kind of a second England. You can buy beautiful bags of fish and chips on the west coast of Cyprus. I know, I've sampled them for myself. And there they met a Roman governor called Sergius Paulus, and they were opposed by a magician called Elymas, who was promptly rebuked by Saul. But in Acts 13 and verse 9, when Saul engages in missionary activity, and he rebukes this this magician, the, the book of Acts records that he was now called Paul. So Saul, born Saul, he starts his letter to the church of Rome with one word, Paul. Why the name change? It could be that his first convert was the Roman governor whose name was Sergius Paulus, or to the English ear, Paul. That may be the reason why Saul's name was changed to Paul. It may well be that before his first missionary journey, 
Saul spent most of his time in the Jewish community, where he was known as Saul. And after Acts 13, when he spent most of his time with the Gentile community, he was, he was known as Paul, which is the, the, the Latin equivalent. That may be the reason. But I find nowhere in scripture that somebody's name is changed without a spiritual rationale. Abraham becomes Abraham, Sarai becomes Sarah, and so forth. Jacob becomes Israel. Each one of us in heaven will get a new name written on a white stone that only we ourselves will know. It will be indicative of our spiritual experience. So why the name change? Well, simply this. When Paul writes to the church of Rome, he wants them to know that he is a completely changed man. That there is no hint of what lay behind. And they don't need to know all the stuff I've told you about him this morning. That's immaterial. The fact that the thing they need to know is, my name is Paul, I am a changed man. That I met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and now I am Paul, and I'm, a Gos- I'm a Gent- uh, an apostle to the Gentiles. And though we live in the year 2014, and we're about to turn into 2015, each one of us, in a sense, has a BC and an AD in our own lives. Like Saul, we can say, I was Saul when I was BC, before I met Christ. And after I met Christ, I now live in AD, the year of my Lord. And now I have a changed name, I have a changed spiritual experience. Saul went to Paul from murderer to martyr. What Saul wants to tell the church of Rome is that I am now Paul, I've had a complete conversion. I'm a changed man with a new purpose in life and a new identity in life because I met the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And how about us? Can we say in our own lives that I have met the risen Lord? Can we say in our own lives that this is who I was? Every sinner has a past. But this is who I am now. Every saint has a future. The next slide on the screen just summarizes our our scripture reading for us. It says there, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, we may not meet Jesus on the road to Damascus. But this week in our um, um, week of prayer, we're focused on practical skills. How do we study the Bible? And we're not just studying how do we study the Bible. Because we believe from Scripture that, uh, for instance, preaching is the proclamation by the spoken word of the living word from the written word. We study the Bible in order that we we may not just know history, but we study the word of God that we might meet the living word himself. And this week in our our week of prayer, we're going to be studying some basic skills. How do I meet Jesus Christ within the words of this book? We may not meet Jesus on the road to Damascus, but we can meet the living word in the written word. Saul has now become Paul. This was a credible conversion. You see, Saul does not defend his apostleship to the church of Rome. Nowhere does he feel it necessary to say, by the way, I killed your brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, and I'm really sorry about this. Saul's conversion wasn't just a complete conversion, it was a credible conversion. We might ask ourselves as well, is our own conversion credible? Do our lives at home, our choice of entertainment, the way we spend our money, what we watch on the internet, our attitudes towards minorities or the homeless or those who are disadvantaged in life, What do these say about the depth of our conversion experience? Well, let me bring it really close to home. Do our children see Jesus Christ in us or not? 
We have a missionary from AFM who's just returned. He used to live in Cambodia among Muslims. And uh, the Muslims had a different name for every Westerner in their community. One guy was called Joseph, another guy was called Ben, and so forth. And uh, as he was leaving, this young man, uh, who now works for us on the west coast of the United States, uh, the community leaders, they they gathered together and they said, you know, um, we never told you what we call you when your back is turned. He said, what do you call me? He says, we call you Isa. That is Jesus in the Muslim mind. We call you Jesus. You are a living representation of Jesus in our midst. Saul could write to the Church of Rome and say, Paul, because his conversion was credible. And as we enter this new year, we also need to reflect on our own conversion experience and ask ourselves, is my change of life, is my conversion experience, is my profession of faith credible to those who know me the best? Saul was a converted man. He was a changed man. He was, it was a credible conversion. And as you see on the slide there, the next thing that Paul wants us to know is that he is a servant of Jesus Christ. Now Saul does not say to the church of Rome, I was a proud Pharisee. He does not say to the church of Rome, I am a brilliant scholar, though he was. He does not say to the church of Rome, I had a brilliant career in Judaism and I gave it all up to serve the man from Nazareth. He doesn't say this. He simply says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, or more accurately, this is a softened translation, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. He's gone from being the rising star of Judaism to a mere slave. He has been purchased by Jesus Christ. He is not a hired man working for a wage. He belongs to Jesus Christ and therefore is obedient to the commands of Jesus Christ. And each one of us should be able to say the same, myself included. I do not work for Jesus for a wage. I am his slave. I am merely obedient to his leading and his commands in my life. Before Herod Agrippa, Paul stated that he was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. He was entirely obedient to his calling from Jesus Christ. And even when facing execution on our next slide, in his final letter to his his young protege called Timothy in the church of Ephesus, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, these are some of his last writings. Paul says this, he said, As for me, I am already being poured out as a libation or a sacrifice, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. From now on there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul was faithful to Jesus Christ. He could say in all honesty, I have kept the faith, I have finished the race, I have fought the good fight. Nowhere does he say, I ran from the fight, I finished short of the finish line. And there are times when I waved in my faith. No, I kept the faith. Paul was entirely obedient to his Lord and Master. This is one of the first things that Paul wants the Church of Rome to know about himself. We may ask ourselves today, what do we want people to know about us? On our Facebook page, on our business cards, when we meet people maybe at a party, and, we, and, you, and you make polite conversation. The people say, what's your name? And then the second question people always ask is, what do you do? Because once we know what we do, we kind of pigeonhole people. I know your income levels, I know your educational background, I've come some kind of social stereotype, what it means to be a teacher, accountant, a physician, um, or a lawyer. But the first thing Paul wants us to know about him is that he is a slave of Jesus Christ. 
Not that he's a brilliant scholar. Not that he had a brilliant career. He wants us to know that he is a slave of Jesus Christ. Our next slide on the screen, Romans 6.23. For the Apostle Paul, being a slave of Jesus Christ is the only important thing in life. Because he goes on to say that we're either slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. And whereas the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Being a slave of Christ is really the only option for a truly converted individual. As we move on through his first verse, he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, and then he says, I'm called to be an apostle. Now, he goes from one extreme, I was a slave, and now I'm an apostle. These are two extreme ideas. And the next slide on the screen, Galatians 1 and verse 1, Paul describes his calling. He says, Paul, an apostle, sent neither by human commission nor from human authorities, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Paul wants the church of Rome to know, and he wants us to know today, that that, um, God did not give him the job of an apostle through the old boy network. Paul did not land the job of an apostle um, because he had great educational background. He didn't land the job of an apostle because he was well-connected with a conference or the union or the division or the GC. He was called by God. His apostleship was a direct commission from God himself. So the obvious question is, are we ready to listen? If this is a message from God to a Gentile church, which we are here today, are we indeed ready to listen? And Paul did not say um, that he was called to the job of an apostle. He was called to be an apostle. There's a subtle difference. You see, this was not a question of having the 40 hours a week of being an apostle. And then you clock off at the end of the week. To be an apostle, um, it was not a question of having an exempt or a non-exempt role, as the U.S. government would say with the FLSA regulations. There was no provision for overtime in being an apostle. There was no keeping of work hours, no workman's comp if you were injured while being thrown to the lions. To be an apostle meant you were ready to be stoned, shipwrecked, beaten, imprisoned, persecuted, falsely accused, chased, and ultimately martyred. If OSHA or the Department of Labor were to look at the job description for an apostle today, they would say that job is illegal. Paul was not an apostle by profession. He was an apostle in his very being. And on the next slide, Acts chapter 20, he describes what it was to be an apostle. Uh, to, the, to the elders of Ephesus. It says, when the elders of Ephesus came to him, this is he about to say goodbye to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the entire time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to warn everyone with tears. To, for Paul to be an apostle was not a 40-hour-a-week calling. It was something he he lived, he breathed, he slept, he ate, being an apostle. Are we ready to hear his message? Are we willing to read what is written in this book of Romans? The next thing that Paul has to say about himself in Romans 1 is that he is set apart for the gospel of God. Now, the root word for set apart has the the same root as the word for Pharisee. Notice this. When Paul, uh, before he met Jesus Christ, he was a Pharisee, which meant he was set apart for reaching God through keeping the law, for being blameless through keeping the law. But then God set him aside, set him apart for another way of reaching God through the gospel of grace. 
at the very beginning of this, of this letter, Paul raises the tension between law and gospel as alternate and exclusive ways of reaching God. He said, I'm set apart for the gospel of God. Paul, before he met Jesus Christ, he says, as to keeping the law, I was blameless. Before he met Jesus Christ, he was earning his salvation through his um, 100% obedience to the teachings of Judaism. That was what he was committed to. That was what he taught. That was what he lived as a Pharisee. But now Jesus has set him aside, set him apart, not for reaching God through human works, but through reaching God through accepting the free gift of salvation. So at the very beginning of this letter, we have the struggle that each one of us has to deal with in our own lives. If I may paraphrase Sister White here, she argues argues in one place in the writings that, that Pharisaism is the natural condition of every human being. And she means there that each one of us instinctively thinks that grace is too good to be true and we have to do something to earn our salvation. And the good news of salvation is that God could take a man called Saul and Saul could enter the kingdom of God not after a lifetime of good works but after a lifetime of persecuting the church. And he spends three days in Damascus and then he is baptized. And if God could do that to Saul, he can do it for me and he can do it for you. There is hope for every sinner today. No matter where we come from, no matter what's been going on in our lives in this past week, there are two ways to reach in God. And generally we beat ourselves up because we think we have to earn our salvation. But Paul says, I've been set apart now, not for reaching God through human works as a Pharisee, but now I've been set apart for, for the gospel of God. That now we receive salvation as a gift from God. Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10 is one of the most beautiful passages of scripture. For by grace, writes Paul later in his life, you have been saved through faith. You might say, he could have said, for by grace I was saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Beautiful words indeed. Not the result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. It's a beautiful verse. I ask our missionaries when they come home on furlough, and I ask you the same question today. When was the last time you were personally overcome by a sense of God's grace to you? I'm not talking about when was the last time you understood the concept of grace. I'm asking when was the last time you felt overwhelmed by a sense of God's grace to you? That you allowed it to wash over you like a cleansing wave. Because if you have experienced God's grace to you, not just you know about it, but you've experienced it. You can now offer God's grace to other people. But if you have never experienced God's grace for yourself, and you have no sense of your need of his grace, then you will never be able to offer grace to anybody else. And your Christian experience will be a graceless, grinding experience. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God saves us through his grace. We are saved not because we deserve it, but because God loves us. We do not have to earn that salvation. Romans 1 verse 5, the next slide on the screen. Paul talks about the gospel of God brings about the obedience of faith. And it would not be a balanced presentation of this passage this morning if we were not to dwell for a couple of moments on what Paul means by the obedience of faith. You see, you can understand this three ways. You can either understand it to say this is the obedience to the faith. 
That means we are obedient and true to a body of doctrine, but this isn't what Paul says. He doesn't have the definite article. He doesn't have the obedience of the faith here. So we really can't understand it this way. Alternatively, we could say the obedience which consists of faith, which means that I'm faithful to to believing in Jesus Christ, but the Bible draws a clear distinction between faith and obedience. So we have to seek another understanding. Perhaps the best understanding of this phrase the obedience of faith. This, the gospel of God is seeking to bring about the obedience of faith as we look at the example of Abraham, who by faith obeyed. Hebrews 11 verse 8. This is the obedience that comes from faith. The obedience of faith, not the obedience of the law. It means a true and living faith in Jesus Christ includes a submission to him and his teachings. A submission to him and his leading. A submission to follow the good shepherd wheresoever he leads. For he is our Lord just as much as he is our Savior. It is not possible to accept Jesus Christ as Savior without also surrendering to him as Lord of our lives. This is the obedience of faith. My children sing in the back of the car as we're driving on a road journey. They love singing this song. They're singing about marriage. Maybe I've shared this with you before. And they sing, and they sing the song, Trust and Obey. For there's no other way to be happy in marriage but to trust and obey. And they sing that to me. And I realize there is truth in that, because if I want a happy relationship with my wife, I need to trust and obey. And I found that is the greatest way to harmony and happiness. And this is the gospel of God, says Paul. It's not made up by Paul, but it's been revealed to him by his loving Heavenly Father, who today in 2014 continues to seek out and save the lost, to look for the lost lambs in our midst, and to welcome home each and every prodigal son who turns their life towards him. So what do we say in conclusion this morning? Well, at the end of his life, and we see this text on the next uh, on the screen before us, when he was facing execution, in some of the last words he ever wrote, Paul wrote from his prison cell to Timothy. And he pleaded with him this plaintive cry at the end of his last book. Paul says to Timothy, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Paul is cold in prison. Also the books... And above all else, bring the parchments. Now, why would Paul say this? Paul yearned for physical comfort. He wanted his cloak. But above all else, he wanted his parchments or his scrolls. Because in the scriptures, he found Jesus Christ once again. He found Jesus Christ in the word of God, as written, just as surely as he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul, as a mature Christian, did not yearn for more entertainment, but he yearns to encounter Jesus Christ afresh. This Christmas season, we've celebrated the babe laid in a physical manger. But in truth, as Luther said, the scriptures were the manger in which the babe was laid. For the scriptures point to him, they reveal him, and they explain him in all his wonder and his glory. And they explain Jesus to any who would slow down to chew over the word of God. So how do we respond today? Well... Our next slide on the screen, very simple. Let God grow our knowledge. In our eight days of prayer, starting tonight through next Sabbath night, we're going to be focusing on basic skills of Bible study. So come, learn, and practice with your body of believers, your brothers and sisters. Secondly, our next slide, let God mold our attitudes. Treasure what we hold in our hands. This book of Romans, the writer was beheaded... And the translator into English, a man called Tyndale, was burnt at the stake. 
We do not hold this book lightly in our hands. So not only do we come for knowledge um, to how gain basic knowledge of Bible study, but we will come that God might mold our attitudes, that we may treasure what we have in our hands. We're going to be looking at the story of Tyndale in the movie form over the last next eight days. The man who translated the Bible into English and died at the stake. And as he was dying at the stake, his crying prayer was, God, open the King of England's eyes. And just a few years later, that same King of England who burnt Tyndale at the stake authorized the, the, the Bible to be issued across the land of England in pulpits. And finally, let God change our practice. It's my prayer that each one of us will not just carry the word of God to church on Sabbath morning, but as we allow God to change our knowledge and our skills, as we allow God to mold our attitudes towards this word of God, that God will change our practice. And that means that we will feed on the word of God day by day. So that when we say to people, Paul, instead of Saul, they know that our, our conversion is complete and it is credible. And, it's, and what we say is worth listening to. May that be our experience for his name's sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.